After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? Against, if I, so the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting... Abram fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, and said, To your descendants I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gershites, and Gebusites. Amen. The story of Abraham begins in Genesis chapter 12. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we're dealing with the period of what might be called primeval history. There's a definite shift in gear between chapters 11 and 12. You can read those opening chapters as an accurate record of things that took place. Others would describe the stories reading these opening chapters as legends or myths. There does seem to be an etiological dimension to the stories. An etiology is a, is a kind of just-so story. 
story told to explain why things are the way they are now. So in Genesis 1 to 11, you find stories explaining why farming is such hard work, why giving birth is so painful for women, why the rainbow is in the sky, and why we all speak different languages. You can read them at that level, or you can read them as a record of things that actually took place. Then in Genesis 11, we have a list of descendants running from Noah's son, Shem, down to Terah, the father of Abraham. And when we get to Abraham... There's this shifting gear. There's the start of a family saga that recounts the origins of the nation of Israel. An ongoing narrative that tells the story of Abraham, Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandsons Jacob and Esau, and his great-grandsons, focusing particularly on Jacob's favourite son, Joseph. Their story runs from Genesis 12 to the end of the book. And while there's no archaeological evidence to support it, in these narratives we find the story of how the nation of Israel started with God's promise to a 75-year-old man who was married to a woman who couldn't have children, that they would have a baby. And from that child, God would make a nation more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. God's covenant people. The story of Israel starts with Abraham. And it's an inspiring story of Abraham's sometimes wavering faith. We read it and we see he's all too human. Sometimes he's full on in trust for God. Other times he you, you, you doesn't seem to know whether he's coming or going. But despite that, it's also the story of God's ultimate faithfulness in keeping his promise. Although he does make Abraham wait for a further 25 years. God first appears to Abraham at the start of Genesis 12. Says to him, leave your home. I want you to set out for an unknown destination because I've decided to bless you. And I've decided to bless all the nations of the world through you. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make you into a great nation. And Abraham takes God at his word and sets out travelling into the land of Canaan. And when he gets there, God appears to him and says, look, this land in which you find yourself, I'm going to give it to your children. But the years roll by, nothing much seems to be happening on the baby front. So the next time that God appears to Abraham in a vision and says, don't be afraid, I'm your shield and your great reward, Abraham decides he's going to have a word and find out what's going on. It's all very well making these grand promises, but as things stand, he says, everything I own is going to be inherited by Eliezer of Damascus when I die. Whoever he is, he's clear he's not one of Abraham's sons. He was a local man, probably, presumably a servant whom Abraham had engaged in his service. The nearest thing he had to a son at the time, but not, not a member of the family. And in response to Abraham's query, God just ups the ante. Eliezer will not inherit your worldly goods. Your descendants, he says, will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And what's more, this land you've been camping in for the past 10 years, I'm giving it to you for you to take possession of it. Still being in a bit of a questioning mood, Abraham asks God how he can be sure this is going to happen. And in response, God makes a covenant with him, declaring that he will give the land from the river of Egypt in the south to the river Euphrates in the north to his descendants. And God backs this promise up with this rather elaborate ritual that involves cutting a, a heifer and a goat 
and a ram in half and laying out the carcasses in two parallel straight lines. Half the animals on one side, the other half of the animals on the other, and there's a couple of birds, one on either side as well. And as the sun sets, this darkness comes on Abraham, he falls asleep, and he sees a a smoking brazier and a flaming torch pass down the centre of the lines of animal carcasses as a sign of the covenant that God is making with him. Or literally, the covenant that God is cutting with him. Because they always talk about cutting a covenant in those days. And cutting the animals in half was part of that cutting of a covenant. And the ancient ritual seems to have been that one or both parties to a covenant would walk through the gap between the divided bodies of the animals and say something like, may God make me like this animal if I don't abide by this covenant that we're making. That was the deal. The animals were originally one, they're now separated in two, you pass through the covenant and we together are bound in this covenant together and if I break it, then may God do to me what's been done to these animals. And if that's the significance of what's happening here, it really is remarkable. Because God is binding himself to Abraham in the strongest possible terms. Threatening himself with dismemberment if he fails to deliver on what he has promised. Because Abraham sees the blazing torch and the brazier passing between the animals, a sign of God's presence passing between the animals saying, I am making this covenant with you, Abraham. And if I break it, may I myself be dismembered. That's the strongest possible way in which God can show his commitment to this man. That's Genesis 15. But Abraham's wife, Sarah, was getting impatient. After all, at 75, she wasn't getting any younger. And IVF hadn't been invented then. So she said to Abraham, look, why don't you go to bed with my servant girl, Hagar? Abraham does so, and when Hagar gets pregnant, Sarai is far from happy about it and treats her so badly that Hagar runs away. But the angel of the Lord sends her back again, and she gives birth to a boy called Ishmael. And another 15 years go by. We're in Genesis 17 now. Abraham is 99 and Sarai is 90. And God is still telling him, look, I'm going to make you increase in numbers. I'm making a covenant with you. He's heard this before. I'm changing your name to Abraham. I'm going to make you very fruitful and you will be the father of many nations and of kings. I will establish my covenant with you and with your children for generations to come. And the whole of the land of Canaan, where you've been staying as a migrant, I'm going to give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. Oh, and I'm changing Sarai's name as well. She's going to be Sarah from now on. The name change means that Abraham gets an H in his name, Abraham. Sarai changes to Sarah. She gets an H in her name as well. That may be an expression of the covenant God is making with them both. There's a school of thinking that says sometimes when you make a covenant with someone, you exchange names with them. And the name the Lord in our Bibles, what is written in place of the name of God, was too holy to be spoken out loud, but it was written Yahweh, Y-H-W-H. The name with two H's in it. One given to Abraham to make him Abraham, and the other to Sarai to make her Sarah. And after this, God is referred to a dozen or more times in the Bible as the God of Abraham. So God takes Abraham's name. I'm going to be known as your God from now on. And Abraham incorporates the distinctive aspirational sound of the Lord's name into his own. Another way of tying God and Abraham together in this covenant relationship. But then suddenly, with all these promises, God slips in a condition. 
Now, your part in this deal is to get circumcised, you and all your sons after you. That's a condition of my covenant with you, which will be null and void for anyone who doesn't keep it. Now, at that point, I've got to say, (laughs) after 25 years of waiting, faced with the prospect of a distinctly painful and unpleasant operation, I think I might have said, enough is enough. (laughs) You're just stringing me along now with empty promises. And Abraham does actually seem to waver a bit, saying, God, can't you just bless Ishmael and have done with it? But God is adamant that the covenant is not going to be with Ishmael. Abraham and Sarah will have a son, and he will be the one who will inherit all these promises. And Abraham, bless him, must have been 100% convinced that God was telling the truth, because that very day, he had himself, Ishmael, and all the boys and men in his household circumcised. That's not something you do lightly. That really is having faith that God would deliver on a 25-year-old guarantee. Fast forward a couple of thousand years, This issue of circumcision is a subject of major controversy among the followers of Jesus Christ. For centuries, the Jews, as God had promised, living in the land, countless in numbers, faithfully circumcised their children as a sign of God's covenant with them. And God had been faithful to his promises, giving Abraham loads of descendants and a place for them to live, even bringing them back to the land after they'd been exiled. And suddenly, this bloke Saul starts saying that circumcision doesn't matter anymore. All God wants people to do is for them to believe in Jesus. And that seemed to attack the very foundations of people's relationship with God. Because in Genesis 17, the Lord is quite explicit. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant, he says. Any uncircumcised male who's not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. But Paul, as he preferred to be called after he started following Jesus, insisted that circumcision for all that was really just an external sign of the covenant. What really matters, he says, is the inner transformation that takes place when people receive the Spirit of God as a result of trusting in Christ. Anyway, he says, read your Bibles. Genesis 15, what does it say? Abraham believed the Lord and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. That means Abraham was right with God because he trusted God way before he got circumcised. Circumcision was just a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. It was an outward sign of an inner reality. So Paul says, what really marks people out as covenant members, as the true descendants of Abraham, is not whether or not they're circumcised. What really matters is whether they share Abraham's faith. Because Abraham was credited with righteousness because he believed God. And if we put our trust in Christ, we are put right with God as well. It's faith that matters. And while it's quite convenient for me to think that Paul got it right... I think he did for good reasons as well. He has a good point when he portrays Abraham primarily as a man of faith. God appears to him the first time, telling him to up sticks and leave home. And he goes, not knowing where he's going, not quite sure what he's letting himself in for, but God calls and he responds with faith expressed in obedience. Years go by. The next time 
God appears, you can tell that this promise is still rattling around in Abraham's brain because he twice challenges God and says, look, I want to know what's going on. How can I be sure that you're going to keep your promise? It's been a while now. Having a bit of a go at God sometimes is not incompatible with trusting him. As Abraham did from time to time, we might want to remind God, ages ago you said to me that you would do this. Well, it's been years decades now and I'm still waiting I'm still praying I'm still trusting what is going on that is a perfectly legitimate prayer to pray because it shows that you are holding in your heart the promise of God and still looking for its realization and wondering why it hasn't happened yet sometimes praying in faith involves having a word with God and reminding him of his promises and reminding him that you're still trusting in him God kept Abraham waiting for 25 years, mind you. Sometimes we can wait a long time. And throughout that period of time, as he and Sarah got older, the prospect of God keeping his promises must have seemed more and more remote. And Abraham wavered. I mean, he he slept with Hagar and they had Ishmael and it all seemed to be, you know, finding other ways of doing what God wanted. But despite that, God continued to fulfill his purposes for Abraham. Because when Abraham is 99 and Sarah is 90, God is still saying they're going to have a child. That's the covenant he's made with Abraham, and Abraham needs to play his part by getting himself circumcised and doing the same for everyone in his household. No way would he have done that if he were not still clinging on to the belief that despite the quarter-century delay, despite his and Sarah's old age, against all the odds... God would still deliver on the covenantal promises that he made. Abraham was a man of faith before he was circumcised. Circumcision was an expression of that faith and trust that he had in God's promises. And so as Paul says 2,000 years later, Abraham believed hope against hope that he would become the father of many nations, even though his own body was as good as dead even though Sarah's womb was as good as dead. It's that kind of faith. The faith that God can bring life out of death that was credited to him as righteousness. That's the kind of faith that we share, friends, because we believe that in Jesus, God has brought life out of death. Because God raised our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead. And we believe that God will raise us with him. It's a big faith that we're called to have. It's a faith that puts our lives, our eternal destiny on the line. But it's a faith that's credited with righteousness through Jesus Christ, who was delivered over to death for our sins and raised from death to put us right with God. Because of what he has done and through faith in him, We are the heirs of Abraham. We are members of God's covenant people. We're not told why. Out of all the people alive at the time, God chose Abraham. Why him? Jewish tradition came up with all sorts of wonderful stories about the kind of person Abraham was, but we we don't know. But God said to Abraham, it's you. I'm going to make a fresh start with you. From you, I'm going to create a nation who will honour my name and be the means of bringing my blessing to the world. Why, Abraham? We don't know. Such is the mystery of election. But maybe, 
Just maybe it's because God saw that Abraham was capable of such faith. But if God has made himself known to you, if that encounter with God has kindled faith in your heart, then be assured that the God who makes his covenant promises keeps his covenant promises. And he has a plan for your life, as he did for Abraham. So trust him. Don't give up. Act on his promises. Believe his word. Follow his call. And God will fulfill his purposes for you and through you in this life and for eternity. As he did for Abraham, he'll do it for you as well.